Now I'm trying to mute anybody who's not answered. To you, maybe. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to LSE. Uh, and to this uh, very special event hosted by the Department of International Development. And it marks the publication of Self in the World, Connecting Life's Extremes, penned by Keith Hart. My name is Joanna Lewis, and Keith has asked me to chair this event today, which I'm delighted and honoured to do. I first met Keith. Uh, in the mid-90s, we worked together for a while and jointly edited a book, Why Angola Matters, and despite this, we have remained friends. <laughs> the plan for today is that, as, uh, that I, as a um, historian, will make a short um, response um, to this book, uh, and then Keith will tell me what I got wrong and tell no, you, you, we'll tell you what the book is about. And I'm also delighted to have um, with us this afternoon, Dr. Kate Meager, Associate Professor no. uh, in Development Studies uh, in the Department of International Development and also Professor John Tresh, Professor of History of Art, Science and Folklore Practice. Uh, at the Warburg Institute, University of London. We will then have Q&A, uh, and hopefully we will be able to bring um, our friends who are joining us uh, online as well. So this is a brave new world, so bear with us um, with the technology as we manage a hybrid event like this for the first time. This event is being recorded, and you will need to press your microphones uh, if you want to ask a question. We'll deal with that later. I'm delighted also to have with me and relieved Dr. Laura Mann, Assistant Professor of International Development, who will be facilitating the engagement of our online audience in the Q&A. And thank you very much to Dipa Patel and the team for putting this um, together. We do also, uh, after Q&A, have a drinks reception, so um, I'm hoping you'll all stay um, around for that. So today then marks the launch of Self in the World, Connecting Life's Extremes, published by Bergen Books. It's the latest book by Keith, uh, who is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at Goldsmiths. He's published uh, work includes in 2000, The Memory Bank. He set up the Prickly Pear Press and the Human Economy Programme in Pretoria, amongst so many other uh, things. He's taught across four continents. So this book, well, for me, it's part of sort of 21st century Gulliver's Travels, meets Pil Pilgrim's Progress, meets the Communist Manifesto, meets the Fast Show. Um, and it is an extraordinary uh, reflection on how to chart and explain and link what Keith sets out at the beginning, our life's two sort of mega journeys. One out into the wider world and the other inward towards the self. And Keith reflects on a life, a packed life, a hypermobile life, a dizzying life of, you know, highs and lows and highs again, um, as he learns across disciplines from anthropology, history, development, philosophy, economics, I cannot do them all justice. And this, in effect, is a guide to connect, help us connect um, life's extremes, defined as the individual and society, local and global, the personal um, dimen dimensions of existence to explore what makes us fully human. 
And Keith always has an eye on how we can become better at this and live in a less unequal world. As Marshall Salin said, as you told me, he said, Keith, to his Pacific Islander informants, that's enough about you, what about me? And at first I was surprised that this wasn't at the start of the book. There are so many wonderful rich quotes, but where was this quote that I have shamelessly borrowed from you so many times um, in lectures that was missing? And I went next to the index then. After all, this was an autobiography, it's about a life. So I looked for people, but there was hardly any people either. This was the most highbrow of indexes I'd come across. It's full of theories of thinkers and themes. Of course, I looked for myself and I wasn't in it either. And it was a mixture of <laughs> relief because the, my 90s were in fact the 80s, a decade of excess, but I was also slightly disappointed. So my reading of it began then with, hang on, there are things missing. Um, but then everything changed. All that fell away as I began to read it. And you got me at the first paragraph. And I'm just going to read um, a short extract from it now to ground us. And because this pa paragraph for me represents, contains in essence, all that I admire and indeed love about this book. And so it begins. I'm sitting at the dining table. The view out of the living room window frames the Laurel Rose on the balcony. It's La Rentrée, the first week of September, when all Parisian children go back to school. Soon my wife and teenage daughter will leave this place. I have refuge in our bedroom, but it is narrow, has no view, and the Wi-Fi is weak. I like to work where I can shut out their conversation, phone calls, YouTube clips, while writing in the same room. I have reason to fear that absorption in my own thoughts will drive me away from everyone. Their babble beyond the wall of my concentration reassures me that I am connected. I have family, I am not alone. And I learned to do this from the beginning when my mum, dad, sister, and I had one heated room in the winter. We used it for baking, eating, drying clothes, homework, sewing, sitting, talking, listening to the radio and keeping warm. If I wanted to read, I had to shut them out and I did, but they were out there. Well, you got me, Keith. This was Keith also sotto voce for me, not being interrupted, the beginning of the book, in flow, um, reconciled, honest, more at peace, an old voice, but also um, a new voice. And so for me, this introduction, really, this preface contains the things that I really love about this book, as I've said. One is that Keith's amazing eye for uh, endearing human um, detail. This extract and all the family history, the personal history, has been recalled really without keeping um, a diary. And I love the details from the early childhood. Quote, this is Keith. He likes wine gums, pear drops, and licorice all sorts, says Mrs. Hewitt to the new sweet shop um, owner. And referring again to the dining room in uh, Faubeg uh, Poissonniere, the view of the living room you set out, you brought in this detail that the master originally, when these flats were built, would have used a commode in his bedroom, that beyond the kitchen, in the maid's quarters, she would have dealt with the water for washing and sewage. Class, um, 
the sort of final frontier, if you like, is never far away from this um, narrative. And uh, as Keith points out, a large majority of people, for those of you, in, you know, who know your British history well, have a lineage of up and down movement between the working class and the lower middle class. So for me, Keith stood out in Cambridge because I had seen just two types of men who walked in two different ways. There were those that strode, I am a man, I'm at Cambridge, I wear a barber, uh, or there were those that minced. And then there was Keith. He brought a third dimension, the, the Neanderthal stomp, uh, as I call it. <laughs> and in this book, I understand why now, because this was a strategy developed from childhood. The specky, swatty kid had to develop this tough uh, exterior, not to have the, you know, the shit beaten out of him, um, basically. So for me at the time, marooned in my sort of liminal space uh, in terms of class, as I was becalmed, you know, in shock that just because my mother had big hair and voted Tory, um, I was not middle class. And uh, unfortunately, my father, a train driver, did not put me right in that working class category either, largely because of my mother's big hair. Um, so um, I was stuck. And was I about to fall through um, the trap door? Well, Keith showed us you didn't fall through a trap door. And this is one of the, the, the strong narratives throughout the book. And it's this extraordinary ability um, that he has that he's turned into this creative force, this ability to move between two classes. It is both a source and also reflects this extraordinary intellectual flexibility. Keith is never knowingly stuck on the pole of a dialectic, but he makes the extremes connect. He makes them speak to each other so that he breaks new ground and it doesn't break um, him. Following on from this then, going back to that dining room and the detail, is, is what I really love as well, is the easy promiscuous juxtaposition of the high intellectual trapeze artistry with the Keith from Manchester, uh, not Cheshire. So we have in this book Kant, Rousseau, WHR Rivers, they have to jostle for attention with Aunt Muriel, uh, with Harold's lost leg in Dunkirk, uh, with Billy Elliot, with an NHS appointment. Out of this, we have a vision of a world society that has in part also grown from experience of living on an unmade floor in Bole in Ghana, of wearing black knee high length, black, yes, that is, that is true, wearing black knee length boots, um, too much information perhaps, uh, and <laughs> being given a papaya to eat, seething with maggots um, inside. Evocatively, we are always brought back to Africa. Keith has moved between Manchester, between bourgeois Swiss society, but has always remained rooted um, in um, Africa. Predictably, of course, as a historian, it's the depth and width to the narratives that you bring in um, that I particularly admire. Your attention to historical chronology, your craftsmanship with your table at the start, you know, the footnotes, and the extraordinary chapters about the inner intellectual life, which you are, you're able to chart your development through your texts um, and how many you know, you actually know that there were nine drafts of this um, particular book. 
your history of the British Empire, I learned so much. It's like speed dating with footnotes. Explorations in transnational history um, is so um, stimulating. And so there is an ease with which you make connections across space and geography in a totalizing way, but never a superficial way. So as a professional historian, all I can say on this point is you bastard. How <laughs> dare you do it so easily? But I cannot be cross with Keith. You cannot be cross with Keith when you read this book, because it's also searing in its insight into mental anguish and torment and lost years. Uh, returning to that first paragraph I began with, there is a sense of potential fracturing, a fragility of, of certain conditions having to be in place, seeking refuge, a reason to fear absorption in one's own thoughts of the babble. So it was simultaneously so upsetting, but also fascinating, uh, like a voyeur, to read the description of a descent into um, you know, mental breakdown and total vulnerability. And what's extraordinary as well is your capacity to even in that mo those moments of insanity, as you describe when you sit there at one point watching a television for a day, making that um, figure of, of infinity, how you see different colours and they're telling you which way to drive, whether red, you know, which colour car you see tells you whether or not to go forward, to turn left or, or, or to turn right. So you, you explain to us um, your ability to still find, to still find a part of your brain where you can observe, you know, that, um, that descent, um, that um, world. And it, it is so um, touching and, and endearing and um, yeah, very sobering when you read that, you know, the, how you describe the years in the 80s where they were the worst days of your life when you were, you were in a struggle to find peace, you could not write for more than um, half an hour. But I don't want to end on a downbeat note because returning again to um, the dining room table in Faubourg Poissonnière and that steady beat that you now have that runs through the whole book and how you in the words of that other great social commentator, Beyonce, you're a survivor. Um, there is there's no manic phases to the writing. You're not being interrupted or contradicted by some outrageous comment by the likes of moi. Um, it, you write it, it flows, you are totally focused. But you're also, this is my final point, totally hilarious. You once said to me, JJ, it takes a lot of hurt to be this funny. And I have to say that the one-liners in your book, you know, are to die for. Um, when you reduce yourself down to size, you are still, you know, you still are able to self-deprecate. Um, I love how you begin chapter nine, quote, I stood on a street corner in Chicago with the wind whistling up my ass. It felt like there was no one in a thousand miles who knew or cared much for me. We've all been there, haven't we? And finally, I think my favourite line on the book, which I hope I don't just break down into laughter um, and, and lose the plot. I just, I, it illustrates not just Keith's humour, but his capacity, this extra gift of totalising, um, where he reduces a whole decade and an institution of 700 years plus in impertinently, nay impishly, cutting them both down to size. And I quote... He says, Cambridge in the early 60s was still a backwater, beautiful, but retarded. <laughs> well, self and the world, uh, congratulations. You made it fit. You've made each other fit perfectly. Congratulations.
Thank you. So my contribution to this launch is split between uh, this short written summary and the free dialogue of the questions and answers phase, which can obviously take much longer. In a way, this division mirrors the issue I struggled with for five years, how to combine life and ideas in a text that works as a whole. At base, this is the contrast between oral and written language, which takes a special form in English, where the low and high language registers have been retained separately, not merged as in French. They are, of course, Germanic and Romance, respectively. I once invented a parlor, a parlor game, but actually couldn't find anybody else to play it. One player has to ask a question in simple Germanic English, and the other replies by repeating it in elaborate Latin French. All native English speakers of any class know the difference between these registers without understanding why. So in my game, for example, a sportsman of poor education is interviewed by a media journalist. Tell me, Bubba, do you think your team will win the game? Uh, well, Howard, uh, in the opinion of my colleagues, we will be victorious. I count myself lucky to have been born a native English speaker when it's the world language, even if it is now like medieval Latin breaking up into regional argots. But my complacency was shaken, shaken long ago by my friend Ulf Hannes from Stockholm, who told me, I feel sorry for you monolingual imperialists. I always knew that no one would read my Swedish, so I joined the largest human category, the bilinguals. My target audience is the largest pool of these speakers and readers of English as a second language. I will argue that my field, anthropology, is moribund in the empires that once dominated it, England, France, and the US, and most lively and creative in Scandinavia, Brazil, the former British dominions and elsewhere. In writing my book, I always kept in mind the two-way character of literature, readers and writers. We tend to divert to, to demean the second and defer to the, uh, uh, to demean the first and, and defer to the, the, uh, uh, the second. But writers often get in a groove and re re repeat themselves, whereas each reader brings a wholly new personal history of life and reading to a given text. This is how culture evolves through its readers, even more than its writers. The first modern writer, Michel de Montaigne in the 16th century, knew that once he let his book go, readers would do whatever they liked with it. His essays have a deep humanity that was in scarce supply then and still is now. 
And now uh, launch into a, a description of the book, but I wanted first to, to give you two extracts from my epigraphs, which captured, I think, this two-sided thing. One is from Nietzsche. He says, good writers have two things in common. They prefer to be understood than admired, and they do not write for knowing and over-acute readers. On the other hand, uh, I quote from Olafur Eliasson, a, a, a Danish designer from a, flick, a, 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 a Netflix series called The Design of Art. He talks about his own life trajectory, and then he says, so why are you watching this episode? I'm happy that you are here, but it is important that you think of yourself. What's in it for you? What are you actually doing here? I could say that to you too. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, because I mean, what I really am aiming for, I mean, I, although I use my own focus uh, as the, 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 the thread of the book, I know that if it has any value, it will mean many different things to different readers that I couldn't possibly uh, anticipate. Uh, and I tried to write it so that it was possible to do that and not be swamped by my interpretations. James P. Crutchfield, an American mathematician and physicist, asks, what lies between order and chaos? The answer now seems remarkably simple, human innovation. The middle ground is where life and creativity grow. As Vladimir Nabokov put it in his autobiography, Speak Memory, there is, it would seem, in the dimensional scale of the world, a kind of delicate meeting place of imagination and knowledge, a point arrived at by diminishing large things and enlarging small ones that is intrinsically artistic. How, this, my book is really trying to ask, ask, answer the question, how do we bridge the gap between a puny self and a vast unknowable universe. As Nabokov says, we need to scale the world down and scale up the self so that the two can meet meaningfully. This is not just about individuals and society, but the time and space coordinates we find ourselves in. Bridging the big things and the small things that make up our lives. Ritual and prayer once connected people in their most intimate selves to an object world personified as God. Works of fiction, I believe, plays, novels, movies, now perform a similar role. The world or history is reduced in scale to a stage or paperback or screen allowing each of us to enter it subjectively on any terms that we choose. Sophocles and Shakespeare are preeminent social thinkers because their medium, drama, plays, bridge, uh, bridges the personal and impersonal dimensions 
of existence in ways that are immediately accessible to those of us watching them. The digital revolution, which I talk about at some length in the book, has collapsed this, collapsed this opposition. But Western societies are still trapped in the world they made in the 19th century. I spent my youth immersed in ancient languages and literatures. Reading old books that we know made a difference is more rewarding than wading through untested ephemera. We learned that great human discoveries are made over many generations. This contrasts with the current mania for identifying unique private, private property in ideas. Thought moves across time and space through stories and conversation. I know that a multitude have contributed to my working memory. The book is rather an, is, is rather an ex egocentric exercise, but I'm not its only begetter. And even if not all my readers would be interested to find out how, uh, who they are and how I found them, uh, I think it's uh, an important uh, 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 contrast with the uh, typical trade autobiography uh, which reduces everything in the world to the personal experience of the writer. So I must introduce readers to the predecessors who have influenced me most, even if it puts some of them off. In fact, I say you don't have to read this section, you know, go straight to the life issue. That's what even most of my academic friends do anyway. <laughs> My target audience is young students before they have been programmed by years of specialist higher education. I want them to understand through my personal development that learning is not just dead books or lectures imposed from above, but something we can acquire by teaching ourselves and learning from our friends at any stage of life. I discovered as a teacher that young people when starting out are more open-minded than students closed down by specialization. I hope too that curious members of the public will also find food for reflection here. I also wish to reach progressive academics in the humanities, social disciplines and anthropology. Even so, I have made little use of contemporary academic writings. That's why you're not in it. Uh, preferring to draw on non-academic literatures of the ages, popular culture, and my own experience. The preface and introduction, and thank you very much for probably right, you know, uh, for repeating the or reading out probably the best paragraph in the book. That's why I put it in first. <laughs> the preface and introduction provides snapshots of, of myself as the author and the book. There are four parts. The first is called Ancestors, and it surveys my main literary influences. It addresses three classes of authors in succession. Uh, writers about the self. Mm. 
writers about the South, writers about anthropology, and the anti-colonial intellectuals. I, I include them, even though I came to them very late in life, because they had to think about new worlds as we do. They had to persuade the masses to fight for their, uh, uh, their vision of such a world. And, they, uh, and, the, and the, the masses in turn, as individuals, had to re-educate themselves in order to do so effectively. And that's why I think we have most to learn from the Pan-Africanists, from Gandhi, from Fanon, Du Bois, and so on. I've worked in 24 countries on four continents. The second part, the self, is the story of this nomadic life told as a chronological sequence in nine chapters. It's the longest section of the book. Part three, world, identifies themes that have shaped my understanding of humanity as a whole. These are movement and its antithesis, unequal society, the digital revolution, how economy can connect the local and the global, and Africa's growing significance for the 21st century world. The last part, which I call lifelong learning, brings self and world together as an extended education. Here I discuss my British origins, excursions into transnational history, money as a school for bridging life's extremes, and the relationship between learning, remembering, and sharing. In the afterword, I ask, what question is this the answer to? And I reflect there on how and why I came to write this book. Throughout it, I combine intellectual reflection with personal stories. The balance between ideas and life varies, as do the organization and style of each part. The front and back matter are written in a self-consciously non-academic way. Each of parts one and three, Ancestors in the World, that form a set of related themes that draw heavily, but not exclusively on my own and others serious writing. These parts will appeal, I suppose, to more academically inclined readers and do not need to be read in a linear sequence. I recommend picking the parts that seem a priori to be of interest to you as the reader. My life story is best read as a sequence. Part four, lifelong learning, consists of very different experimental essays. The formal boundaries I observe in parts one and three are mostly absent here. I hope that the language of all parts is accessible and uncluttered, but a reader's engagement in any particular part is likely to fluctuate. Combining personal and impersonal aspects of life in society usually requires different levels of formality, language, and intellectual style. The book as a whole is an assemblage. I had not yet or ever will reached a synthesis of the dialectical pairs I seek to combine. Readers' attention to different parts and aspects of the book 
will vary depending on their background. I've included an unusual reference of literary, uh, uh, sorry, an unusual number of literary references. That's why the index is so scholastic, you might say, because I read a lot. And as a teacher, I want to give those of you who are interested the chance to follow up in the bits that seem to be promising. But some sections of the book can easily be read like a novel or a documentary. That's it. Thank you so much, Keith. I'm delighted now to hand over to Dr. Kate Meir. She's Associate Professor in Development Studies in the Department of International Development at LSE, a specialist in um, the African informal economy, and she's published widely on issues from smuggling to the gig economy. And her most recent book um, is called um, Rewiring the Social Contract, Economic Inclusion and the Gig Economy in Nigeria. Kate. Thanks very much. Uh, just one correction, not just a chapter, not a book. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And I guess it's really obvious from that introduction, a very kindly introduction, what connects me to this book. And that is that Keith Hart uh, coined the informal economy concept, and I've spent the entirety of my career working on the informal economy. So this book was of particular interest to me um, because it was a, a chance to gain some insights into the thinking of the person that coined the term that has been the basis of all of my academic research, um, but also because of the interesting things that it tries to do with connecting um, personal experience with wider thinking. Um, this is a book that asks big questions and answers them really with tantalizing reflections on formative thinkers, on life experiences underpinning a really illustrious and varied academic career, and possibilities for global economic change, the kind of where do we go from here once we pull these issues together kind of, of question. So it's very much an autobiography with a wider purpose, and that is to consider the efforts of an iconic scholar to extract meaningful insights into the nature of a globalized economy. And the issue of the economy, the nature of the economy really underpins a lot of the reflections. What does this mean? How does it help us understand how to both uh, research and develop an economy that actually meets human needs rather than growth or the, the desires of the privileged and powerful? So Keith does this kind of investigation really by situating himself in history, as well as in a wider history of ideas. And amid the discussions of these big ideas are reflections on the kinds of constraints that he grappled with in the context of a post-war upbringing, a career of crossing boundaries, um, disciplinary as well as spatial boundaries, engagement with a pantheon of big names in anthropology. It was quite shocking to read, as I said, to Jack Goody or the, the various big names that I've heard of, but never thought of as real people that were very much part of Keith's everyday experience. Um, and 
the pantheon of, of big names, not only in anthropology, but in African development and life's ups and downs along the way. So it really is very much a book about negotiating the big ideas and the constraints of daily life and putting together some, some kind of understanding about what an economy is and how you get meanings, meaning from living in it. It's a book, as I said, of particular interest for me because of the insights into the development of the informal economy concept, which in Keith's time was referred to as the informal sector. Now, this is not a particularly central part of the book. It comes up in reflections about his early life and it pops up in a few places in the book. Um, but it is very much something that brought me into the slipstream of Keith Hart's life. Um, and it's something that really informs uh, many of the wider reflections he's had on the economy since then. Although I've never worked with Keith and I've only met him a few times, um, he is a very central figure in my own intellectual formation, which creates a bit of an infinite regress in the use of a life to reflect on the bigger ideas of a life that come from the events of a life reflecting on the bigger ideas of a life. So this is very much the angle from which I, I read this book and was quite struck uh, in a, a broader sense by some of the similarities in our own biographies. So I too had a background in uh, philosophy and religion rather than in a, a mainstream uh, social science discipline initially. Um, became interested in Africa and connected these things uh, in ways that drew me more into ethnography, a kind of hybrid uh, engagement with ethnography and development studies. And um, very much had a life lived across many of Keith's common compass points, North America, the UK where I was born um, and where I currently live uh, and uh, various parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. Never been to the Caribbean, no. So it is intriguing to think how some of the similarities, perhaps in our own backgrounds, connect to interest in particular types of ideas um, as we engage academically. So in this brief discussion of the book, I will focus on three things. The first is the role of biography in shaping Keith's scholarly perspective. The second is the disciplinary experiences uh, that he's had and their role in the rise of the informal economy concept. And thirdly, an informal economy lens on Keith's wider perspectives on economic development. So to start with the issue of biography, I very much liked the idea of using uh, literary ancestors and reflections on their intellectual thought as a lens on his own biography, um, and also entering this through the lens of memoirs written by various of these uh, literary, literary ancestors. So Keith's mem own memoirs are, are situated very much within a wider intellectual frame that links personal experience to reflections on bigger questions. And definitely the ancestors represent an eclectic range of scholarly memoirs and anthropological as well as development ancestors. Rousseau, Benjamin Franklin, Immanuel Kant, Chinua Achebe, Marcel Mauss, W.E.B. Du Bois, C.L.R. James, Fanon, and Gandhi. And there he's connected an account of their lives and or his engagement with them 
to bigger ideas on meaningful engagement with big questions of life and economic change. And he reflects on how their intellectual influences have been useful in breaking the boundaries of disciplinary, class, and racial perspectives in order to gain deeper insight into um, the nature of economies and the, the meaning of economic change. While this group of ancestors is very eclectic, they come from different time periods, different disciplinary and professional training, different nationalities and even races, there are also a number of shared characteristics among them. They are all established male middle-class professionals of various sorts, all Western trained. And that creates a range of insights, but also a range of things that can be taken for granted. And I couldn't help wondering about whether the inclusion of female intellectuals or intellectuals or um, memoirs from outside the Western sphere of um, reference might have contributed to breaking the boundaries in the way Keith Hart thinks about the economy. And what came to mind while I was reading the um, ancestors was two famous memoirs of 18th century Africans. Ayuba Sulemanjalo, who's the subject of the first known portrait of a black person as an autonomous individual, and Olaude Akiano, who was a freed slave and prominent abolitionist and social activist. Now both knew the global economy in a very different kind of way. Their direct con connection with the global economy was through being kidnapped into slavery, freed, and they sub subsequently became well-known figures in UK society. Um, but they experienced direct connections with the global economy, travel and engagement with prominent members of, of UK society as dangerous even after they were freed. Uh, both were fearful of being sold back into slavery until they had the official documents that would guarantee their freedom, uh, even if somebody chose to try to sell them. And what that got me thinking about is the ways in which people who have certain kinds of backgrounds have institutional guarantees of agency, but for powerless groups, unmediated connections with the world can be a source of peril, not of freedom. But they have to secure institutional protection from predatory uses of power as a condition for the kind of agency that Keith very much longed for in his life and spent a great deal of his time and energy creating. Two more minutes, Kate. Okay. Um, the disciplinary uh, experience in the informal economy really drew me into thinking about the fascinating account of the tensions between institutional and disciplinary constraints and protections of Keith's uh, personal biography. The struggles of upward mobility of a lower class Northern lad in post-war uh, UK in a hurry to get ahead and change the world, who experienced his own background in education um, and disciplinary training as narrow and constraining. Um, even the very privileged Cambridge education with its narrow methodological approaches of 1960s anthropology and the colonial legacies uh, which he encountered uh, in fieldwork. He certainly um, disliked the dusty old regime approach to learning and spent his time trying to break the frame and find different ways to connect through betting, building diverse networks to expand and finance new horizons. 
Um, from the perspective of contemporary academia, though, his um, training looks like a source of enormous erudition and freedom, translating across multiple languages, discovering new fields of inquiry, engagement with prominent scholars in the field, and the Cambridge imprimatur that gave access to top academic jobs in major universities in the UK, US, and Canada, despite various health setbacks. Um, and also the freedom to discover his own research topic in the field and engage with local realities and devise his own methodological approach in the field. Uh, Keith speaks of the disappointment with his own discipline, anthropology, for being too focused on villages, ethnic groups, and kinship systems to capture the grand sweep of translocal networks, complex livelihoods outside of agriculture, and the globalizing nature of the economy. Though his characterization sometimes sells contemporary anthropology a bit short, uh, given that it has moved more recently into the study of global informal trading networks between China and Africa, processes of financialization, and digital ethnography. But uh, Keith was very frank in his reflection on the struggles of coming up with a topic and an approach, and gave a wonderful account of the methodology he, he hit on, collaborating in petty illicit enterprises in a mig migrant settlement in Ghana, which he used to generate field notes. And one just tried to imagine trying to get that kind of methodology past the LSE ethics and <laughs> safety committees in modern time. Um, but his engagement with the, uh, with the informal economy itself was, I think, the most interesting part of the book for me. I was very intrigued by how specific the context of his engagement was. Trying to understand informality from the perspective of a settlement of low-income migrants from northern Ghana who were poor, largely rural, largely rural origins, unskilled, and cobbling together tenuous livelihoods. He saw the informal economy as a free market zone operating outside the law, which gave, it, gave the concept a slightly seedy slant of precarious and regulated semi-criminal activities, uh, which escaped from state control, uh, made by local people and operating outside the state. But this was very much the product of a particular vantage point in a poor migrant community which missed many other dimensions of the informal economy, which his creation of the concept has allowed people subsequently to explore. Um, Keith really made lemonade out of the, the lemons of the constraints of his anthropological framing and, and created something that other people could run with. But this um, perspective reinforced his sense of economic institutions as constraints that impeded rather than facilitated popular livelihoods um, with the informal economy emerging from individual solutions rather than economic institutional systems. Um, but this approach opened my own uh, engagement with the informal economy to see it as something that is, uh, or enter into it uh, through systems based on skilled indigenous business activities of like small-scale manufacturing, skilled cloth weaving, or large-scale money changers who finance the um, informal import-export trades uh, based on a deep range of uh, pre-colonial economic institutions adapted to contemporary times uh, and which finance uh, informal economies of accumulation rather than simply informal economies of survival. Kate, can I pause you there? We could perhaps come back to some of the other points in Q&A. 
Sure. Okay. Let me close just by saying that uh, the the idea of the informal economy as a free market zone and the idea that informal uh, that engagement in the economy, human engagement, demands transcending institutions and states and uh, the various constraints of uh, disciplinary systems. I think. Um, is something that could be revisited by looking at the ways in which institutions and disciplines enable and protect, particularly among powerless groups who lack some of the advantages that Keith had, despite the ways that he uh, struggled to break open uh, institutions and disciplinary perspectives. Sorry, lovely. Thank you very much indeed, Kate. Thank you. Finally, I'd like us to turn to Professor John Trash. He's Professor of the History of Arts, Science and Folklore Practice at the Warburg Institute, University of London. He's editor of the History of the Anthropology Review, author of The Romantic Machine, and also author of The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science. John. Thanks a lot. And um, thanks to everybody for being here. I'm pleased and honored to have the invitation to talk about Keith's uh, wonderful and extremely surprising book. Um, I'm very happy to see that Keith read from notes because in his book, he makes a big point about delivering most of his lectures improvised. And I felt that would be setting the bar very high and I'm not gonna improvise this. Um, but I did, in, in listening to the, the first introductions, a, a memory came to mind, which I'm going to risk uh, going, on, going off on, which is when I met Keith, we were talking about um, some figures in the history of anthropology. And I said, really, Keith, this guy kind of seems like he was a con artist. And Keith said, takes one to no one, chum. <laughs> and from that, I drew not just a, a, a slightly bracing uh, challenge in a very early supervision, but also a sense of Keith's cosmology and his sense of what uh, an intellectual is and really what it is to be in the world. And I think the, the notion of imposter, imposter syndrome, um, which has been talked about quite a bit and is something that particularly besets female academics, I think it's quite a generalized sense of, of Keith's way of being in the world and his sense of most people. And I think rather than that being a kind of index of some inability to, to be the person you're expected to be, I think for Keith, that's actually a sign of, of authenticity, sincerity, and actually the sense that you do deserve to be doing what you're doing. If you're not able to doubt your role in whatever social game you're playing and, and have some distance between yourself and that role, you're probably paying it, playing it badly. And, and the, the capacity for movement that that sense of, of distance between self and role um, gives is something that he explores in his writing and really I think in his life. And it's, it's there in all of the um, uh, pop cultural references that he's dropping left and right in, in this book and that it's endlessly amusing to talk with Keith about. Um, the title, uh, self in the world connecting life's extremes is a good example of truth and advertising. We get a lot of views of the world and we get a lot of Keith's self. We also get a lot of examples of trying to connect. The, the, the slogan, only connect, that Ian Forrester gives is one that he cites and one that he enacts throughout, throughout the book. Um, not just prose and passion, inner life and outer life, as Forrester talks about, but also a vast scattering of disciplines and locations and above all, as we've heard already, the book strives to connect the opposed scales of the immediate and personal and the abstract, global, and world historical. It's really a, a sui generis production, one of a kind, aimed at multiple audiences, 
with historical and personal narratives and detailed technical interventions. So I'm really glad to be preceded by someone coming from development. There are lots of uh, challenging notions that speak to the world of development in it, and especially related to rethinking Africa beyond the limits of the nation state as part of a, an emerging world economy or an existing one that's always in transformation. To me, as someone interested in anthropology and the history of anthropology, its central target seems to be the discipline of anthropology, which turns out for, for Keith to be one of his most enduring homes, which is appropriate for someone who defines himself as a nomad. The book is Keith's plea for an anthropology relevant to the biggest contemporary problems, as well as philosophical questions of justice and human potential, quote, joining people where they live in order to find out what they do, what they think and want, while also aiding to envision and to bring about a better world contemplating humanity's destiny on and beyond this planet. And that's his phrase. There's not a lot of outer space travel, but it's there as, as the, the overall horizon. He returns to Durkheim's notion of homo duplex, arguing for and embodying the idea that the great challenge humans face and that anthropology is uniquely suited to deal with is to reconcile conflicting demands of individuals and the collective. That challenge is even greater once we recognize, as much of 20th century anthropology didn't, that the collective that we have to come to terms with is actually a world society with all of its conflicts and deeply uh, misunderstood and hidden historical sedimentation. So how do we reconcile individual with, with the broader collective at all of the scales within which we, we have to live? There are a lot of jaw-dropping moments in this book sometimes from the sharpness and depth of insights. For example, on the brutal logic of globalized apartheid, a phrase that he develops in, in really shocking ways, or the role of modern universities as bureaucracies for managing national capitalism. It also comes from astonishment from the vividness of his recollections in cityscapes and encounters from Manchester and Cambridge to Durban and Detroit, and the rawness of his confessions, his partnership with small-time crooks in Ghana, or the breakdowns he suffered in the 1980s, climbing the US academic ladder. Hilarious and sometimes devastating stories are recounted wittily alongside piercing summaries of intellectual works and historical episodes and utopian hopes. As we've heard, he describes a number of his precursors in, in autobiography in great detail, uh, Gibbon, Franklin, Henry Adams, Chinua Achebe, joining with his very idiosyncratic, um, but I think uh, compelling, canon of anthropological precursors, uh, Vico, Kant, Rivers, and Mose. Writing against longstanding academic distrust of the Enlightenment, Keith insists on the radical force, which is still alive today, of the 18th century ideals of democratic rule, rejection of arbitrary authority, and a cosmopolitan global society, as sketched in Kant's perpetual peace. But he also brings in necessary correctives to any illusion that Enlightenment ideals have been widely or unequivocally achieved, introducing the anti-intellectual, the anti-colonial intellectuals whose thought has also shaped him. And this is Du Bois, um, Gandhi, C.L.R. James, the Trinidad-born theorist of cricket and revolution, author of The Black Jacobins, with whom Keith worked. These sources combine to form one of the book's central dialectics. Democracy, autonomy, and well-reasoned egalitarianism are splendid, humane goals, but seen from the perspective of the colonized and marginalized, and from the other side of Du Bois's color line, they ring hollow. 
Rather than give up on these ideals, however, what's needed is a realistic, grounded view of ways to reach them, starting with a view of life as it's lived, with all the hypocrisy, failure, and deliberate, deliberate exploitation in current arrangements. The book's formal and stylistic mobility might take it beyond either these autobiographical precursors or the theoretical precursors he cites, and move it closer to much more recent experiments in a genre in genre and writing pursued by writers such as Chris Krauss or Maggie Nelson, as in her book, The Ar Argonauts, which has been given the tag of auto theory. And I think Keith's book really is a work of auto theory. In such works, academic debates are mediated through personal experience, resonating often with the feminist slogan that the personal is political. Keith, like Teju Cole, or before him, W.G. Zewald, makes private ambiguity unfold against the backdrop of well-ordered cruelties of exploitative empires. The book shows Keith's own way of connecting present realities with hope for ideals as an example for what anyone can and really should do and what anthropology can do to help. The view from Africa and the Black Atlantic is particularly privileged and a methodological pluralism combining views from many angles, what he calls cubism, might bring the whole together. He makes a vigorous plea to redeem money as both personal and impersonal and as a way of reckoning one's relations to, the, to a wider world. This drives his vision of the human economy, a sense of making, trading, buying, selling, speculating, owning, using, and losing, which would be organized to allow everyone to be a whole human being. Anthropologists can help by working out and sharing perspectives that's, that see people as always cubistically located in a self, home, city, nation, world continuum, keeping humans and their ideas in constant motion. This also means experimenting with writing forms, as in this book, as in his work with new media, with the Prickly Pear Press, with the Open Anthropology Cooperative, an online community with tens of thousands of participants. In his own movements, he's been particularly close, however, to the pulse of world society of the past century. The central and longest section of the book, Self, more than repays the price of entry. It's, it's a fantastic read with tales of a Manchester childhood and Accra fieldwork. We feel the squeeze of the three up, three down, semi-detached Old Trafford Terrace House, pressurized by the aspirations of his father, the postal engineer called Saint, Saint, Saint Stanley, and his mother and grandmother, a working class Tory and snob, that's his words. He, <laughs> he hoards pear drops and, and all sorts, licorice all sorts, and swats for exams to Manchester grammar, but toughens up his facial expressions to meet other street kids on his passage from home to school. He spends his time at home reading, singing, and playing cards, and time on the street with the other lads drinking, smoking, and betting. He games out the entry exams and wins a ticket to Collegiate Paradise, Cambridge. There, he rides out the shock of its feudal arrangements in which little lords were archly dominated by porters and betters first by mastering the languages, myths, and military tales that he reads in classics, and then by a fortuitous switch to anthropology, irresistibly drawn by a field whose members could study anything in the world. He also is impressed by its low intellectual standards, he says at one point. He makes a small mint with a horse betting system, which seems to be completely foolproof, and um, earns the ambivalent patronage of Jack Goody, eventual, eventually Meyer Fortas, and Edmund Leach. 
He then details his fieldwork among rural Ghanaian migrants to the port city of Accra as a series of glorious disasters and recoveries. There's an incredible passage of Breaking Bad where he realizes that he's only gonna learn about this informal economy if he participates in it. And there again, I'm not sure the ethics board would, would give it a pass today, but it's a fantastic tale. He's help, he helps pickpockets and burglars, sets up as a money exchanger and then a money lender and works through the minefield of favors, threats, long cycles of credit and debt, kin obligations and police harassment that thrive below the view of official economics at the time. This stunning material also often escapes official anthropology. Though now, after writing culture and a turn toward reflexive anthropology, he probably could get away with this, this work. I think it'd be much cited as, as a first monograph. At the time, it, it, it couldn't turn into a monograph and only later informs his work obliquely, um, sort of under, uh, through the footnotes and through allusions. Later, he's drawn into the world of development and post-colonial policy in New Guinea, the Cayman Islands, and Hong Kong, where he learns, quote, about dealing with criminal elites, their, sl their slum counterparts, and development practitioners. These experiences give him a rather jaded and devastating perception of a contemporary system where an informal economy in which rules are ignored, bent, suspended, or simply don't exist increasingly dominates the entire economy. From hedge funds to, to, ca to capture of the state by cronies to the labyrinths of offshore savings. Yet his vision of Africa as humanity's future, it's the site of the fastest growing population, and despite the failures of post-colonial states and depredations of foreign interventions, it's ripe for new regional alliances and a world-changing revolution. He follows a dizzying route through academic consulting and writing jobs, marriage and children, winding up in Durban and Aberdeen with eventually a home base in Paris with Sophie Chevalier. I got to know Keith best at the start of this Paris phase when I was doing my PhD there on socialism before Marx, with long rambling chats at, at sidewalk cafes after afternoon sessions where we would sneak in to watch B-movies, crime dramas, detective stories, even teen comedies. The mythology of the movies and crap pop culture moved us both, and I got an, also got an apprenticeship in world history, la présence africaine, academic gossip, economic anthropology, and speculative world building over coffees, beers, and meals. So thanks, Keith, for that, and also thanks, Sophie. I also got a sense in those conversations of what Keith must have been like in the classroom, that he's able to convey to any student who's ready to hear it, that there's an incredible, if often horrendous, millennia-old drama going on around you. And it's up to you not only to understand your place in it, but to get into the game and play your hand to steer it toward a better end. This book conveys to readers that sense of urgency and potential and the reward of constantly learning and revising what one knows, all within a nightmare of history that's as bad as anyone might possibly imagine. This book, Self in the World, dramatizes Keith's own journey, running down a dream. For some reason, he's obsessed with Tom Petty, and quotations of Tom Petty's music shows up over and over in the book. That gives a nice kind of musical uh, background to, to the reading. It carries us along with its driving sense of expectation, striving, potential, loss, and hope. It draws together the world that made it and goes a long way toward realizing the world it wants to make. 
I hope you'll all gam I hope you'll all take the gamble of picking it up and join Keith for the ride. Okay, selfs out there, it's over to you. It's time to play your hand and get in the game. What about some responses then from the audience, those in front of us, but also uh, our online uh, participants? Any questions or comments here, even if you haven't read the book, but from what you've heard in our, our rich presentations or for Keith um, himself, who's gonna be brave? I thought they were mainly for me. <laughs> Not just that I was a, a, a bit so player in this sequence. self has spoken. <laughs> to the extent that people want to discuss the book, I will answer. And of course, any others that you would like to engage from what they said, that's fine. Press your uh, microphone here so that it's flashing red, I think, and then um, everybody can hear you. Gentleman in front row. Well, of course, I haven't been able to read the book yet. I'm looking forward to it. But um, it does, you know, I've read faithfully um, Keith's blogs and essays ever since I started my undergraduate studies. So I can recognize the development of lots of familiar themes. Um, this meeting of intellectual history and Africanist anthropology and, and, and kind of personal social history. And it seems to me that it it picks. It sounds to me that the book picks up from those blogs in being really a a, a manifesto for for humanism, you know, a humanist anthropology and a humanist socialism, albeit one which is, you know, very alert to the emancipatory potential of money and and markets more than uh, some socialist traditions. And I guess my my question for Keith is, um, what are, what are your sort of thoughts for the prospects of of humanism um in the sort of the grand the in the expansive sense that, that you see it i think it's fair to say that in contemporary anglophone anthropology humanism is somewhat out of fashion or under question in in various ways and um maybe also in contemporary anglophone uh, left-wing politics is also somewhat out of fashion or, or in question albeit the kind of resurgent since 2008 of, of, of lots of human economy movements in different forms that you've, you know, you've brilliantly theorized. So yeah, I wonder your, your, um, how hopefully you're feeling about the, the prospects for humanism and, you know, maybe hopefully the book can help inspire a next generation, but yeah, how, you, how, how are you feeling? How positive are you feeling about that? Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, the my, my my argument in the book is that uh, that we are not yet human, and uh, we are in fact part human, deformed by the distortions of race and class and nationality, and uh, and we show therefore we should it's not something that's in our DNA. Is something we have to become individually and collectively. Uh, I also, although I don't think I articulate this quite as strongly as I could, in my idea of the human economy, which I've been working on now for two decades with, with collaborators, 
is that you know the economy has to be human in two senses one is it has to be recognized that it's in the hands of human beings and their interests and perspective have to be at the forefront of economic analysis and prescription but it's also the case and uh, uh, that uh, the idea of humanity as a whole is very difficult to see and realize uh, one's own connection with. But unless a human economy approach addresses the human predicament at our time in history, then I wouldn't bet very heavily on there being a 22nd century. That's my... I don't say how I think this will be found, but I, I argue that between these two um, premises, uh, we should start with the local, uh, which is where you know human meaning is most vivid, and especially most vivid in the world of children, who then learn how not to be that. Uh, but the. This uh, uh, we have. We can't imagine a world or humanity as a whole in one easy step from that. But we should adopt as a principle of discovery and work, extending uh, our local knowledge and interests to a wider frame, and certainly one wider than the nation state of which we're part. So this principle of extension between the two poles of what humanity ought to be considered of, that is to say that we what we do matters as individuals and collectively, and that we have to think, start thinking about our place in the world and what that means. Uh, but on the question of humanism, <coughs> I think that this would this requires a rethinking of what humanism is, and I actually detest the post-humanists and other people who, having discovered that old humanism didn't cover the world as they experienced it, decided to ditch humanity altogether and imagine something that was a cyborg or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, my, my, uh, uh, okay, um, sorry, every night, this happens to me occasionally, I lose the track, but I'll get it back very quickly. Um, so what I, what I argue, what I, what I try to, to look at concretely is what is the relationship between uh, grassroots initiatives and the vast bureaucracies that organize modern society. I argue that we are not going to get give up, you know, cities and states and 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 all the, the the great bureaucracies that many of us find to be oppressive. And certainly, many left wingers would rather not have anything to do with at all. That is corporations and states and cities and international organizations, financial networks and so on. I've always had as my, I've always wanted to 
to get to know from the inside these organizations, not necessarily to be defined by them, but also because I think bureaucracy has the, the, the potential to achieve what small groups and individuals never could by themselves. As I, you know, I never met a grassroots organization that was capable of launching communication satellites. And, uh, 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 you know, and yet we all live by them now, don't we? So, so and, and I think the, the, core, the core deficiency of old humanism, which is manifested in all trade biographies, is that it's only worth knowing if I experienced it, which is what I tried to get beyond in this book. Uh, 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 so, 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 I mean, what I argue that being a human being is someone not only who has, you know, vivid personal encounters and experience, but it's also someone who lives by laws that they didn't make, by machines that they don't understand, in a world that is, appears to be running out of control. You know, and, and so being human is how you combine the great impersonalities of your existence with those things that you know well. This is Durkheim. Durkheim says, you know, we all, what we know is the everyday. It's like, you know, John Lennon's day in the life. I woke up, brushed my teeth, caught, missed the bus on the way to work, all this. This is what we know. But I mean, you know, Durkheim said, but there are all kinds of things, wars, revolutions, economic depressions, natural catastrophes that affect us very personally and in large numbers like the Ukraine war. And we want to make a, a connection with that. And, and religion, traditional forms of religion did that. They gave you a means of connecting your everyday life with the larger questions in, of which the most important were what happens when you die. Uh, so, so, you know, so, so humanism in the old sense could never be enough. And if it leads us to prefer to meet in little clubs and talk left-wing politics, it's not gonna get us very far because we, you know, we have to humanize the great bureaucracies we will need to solve our world's pressing questions. So, you know, so, so I, 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 my argument is that just as we um, are actually not yet human, nor is the humanism we need yet formed, but it will only be formed by an attempt to uh, combine uh, small scale initiatives with the kind of organizations that can meet the threats we are subjected to? It's a great question. You two need to talk. <laughs> working on it, working on it. <laughs> Who else? Yes. Uh, thank you very much for really interesting and, and, and entertaining uh, interventions. Keith, I just wondered if I could ask you a little bit about the intellectual ancestors who didn't make it into a book, or at least the ones we haven't heard uh, from so far. And I was surprised that Carl Polanyi uh, hasn't featured. And I wondered if you could perhaps say a few words about Carl Polanyi and your work with Polanyi and, and how it's uh, influenced your intellectual uh, trajectory. I should say, by the way, that, that my selection of the people to write about 
And it doesn't mean that they are the most important people in my life. I was with my friend Johnny Parry a couple of nights ago, and he said, I don't agree with your list of heroes. And I said, they're not my heroes. That's a childish way of representing. I actually do name two heroes in my book. One is Fred Engels, because it was his uh, bicentenary, and the other was my Auntie Muriel, who, <laughs> who was the first female production line, production line inspector uh, of Lancaster Bombers in, in, in uh, you know, Okay, so um, uh, Polanyi has been, I don't, I mean, I always give students Polanyi's Great Transformation to read because I've never had a disappointed customer. And uh, 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 it's brilliantly written. But uh, I, over the years, I mean, you know, I mean, there is no one that I've learned uh, uh, from so much as from Marx. And increasingly, and both Marx and Polanyi miss out on the biggest political seizure of the 19th century, which is the rise of national capitalism in the leading uh, in, 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 in Britain and Germany and Japan and America uh, uh, in the 1860s and 70s. And, uh, you know, I mean, the fact is that it's very often, I mean, I would say that the left in general and Polanyi also with his Christian socialism, uh, they know that, by the way, I never said that the informal economy was a free market zone, but well, never mind. Uh, they, 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 they take the notion of the free market uh, of the right wing or of capitalism and, and, and negate it. But in the process, they reproduce free market ideology by using it to name what they're against. And uh, uh, Polanyi was extremely political. I mean, he knew, you know, he, I mean, he was in favor of, of planning as opposed to, you know, capitalist markets and, and so on, but he never, I, I mean, by reducing Victorian industrial capitalism to the self-regulating market, he ignored the political developments, which were absolutely crucial, which is that the bourgeoisie having dispensed with the military landed aristocracy, uh, in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, discovered by mid-century that they couldn't, they couldn't control uh, all the people who were ending up in the cities, some of whom were industrial workers and many of whom were organized in criminal gangs that had taken over these cities. So they, they then made an alliance with the enforcers, with the, the military landlord class, the, the, I mean, Weber uh, uh, saw it clearly in the alliance between the Rhineland capitalists and the Prussian army and bureaucrats. So the Germans were very clear about this dualism, but it was kind of, it was never made so explicit. And it was also the case. I mean, the samurai in, in Japan, you know, became bankers. <laughs> that, that was their, their accommodation and so on and so forth. So, you know, I mean, the, 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 I, 
I, I don't like what Polanyi did after he took up an academic job in post-war America. I think it's a lousy prescription for economic anthropology. The idea that economics is for economists and, and you know, and, 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 and the economic anthropology is for historians. And, and the one it has a good line on, 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 on industrial societies and the other studies, non-industrial society. That whole thing was, I think, a mealy-mouthed accommodation to America after the war. And, but so, you know, but the, the, the things that he wrote, uh, I mean, the book, uh, The Great Transformation is fantastic. It's a, a permanent source of inspiration to anybody who reads it. But remember, you know, I, I've been living in France for 25 years. And in Europe, generally, I mean, Polanyi rose as Marx declined after 1989. And out of that came uh, theories like uh, social and, 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 and solidaristic economy and so on. Again, a depoliticized notion of economy that was supposed to be a critique of, of, of capitalist states, you know? I mean, it, so in, in the process of the last 10 years, talking with Latin American, French, Italian uh, activists and theoreticians, I've tended to move away from uh, from Polanyi, but in my writing, not this book, I have to say. I, I mean, I, I became more interested in, in most as an icon of this way of thinking than Polanyi. Sorry I'm taking so long to answer these questions, but. Gentleman Nasser. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, first of all, because probably I haven't read the book yet, but probably it will give us the inspiration to live our life or to be written in a book. Uh, so that will be my first takeaway. So my question is, if us as a human being, but even most importantly as social scientists or anthropologists, economists, and so on, we are so focused on learning, things and making things happen during our lifespan. But as, as you said before, a lot of big transformation and big change happen after we die. So how can we connect the desire, the need, the scope, uh, and kind of our purpose to figuring out things and changing things today or during our lifespan, and the fact that probably, uh, let's think about climate change, uh, cosmopolitan and so on, the big change will happen us. So how can we connect this? Thank you. You don't know you're in World War III already? <laughs> you really think it's going to happen after your life? You'll be lucky. Sorry. I mean, to go back to, I just can't get this. I mean, people want to think, you know, yeah, anyway, the, 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 I think it's very, we don't want to talk about what's happening now, but it is extremely dangerous. And it has only begun, you know, so we don't know how it's going to. But the, 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 what I haven't mentioned very much today is the, the argument about education in, in this book. 
I mean, I refer very extensively to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile, which I think it is one of the greatest books ever written. And, and I think his nearest uh, contemporary or 20th century counterpart is Paulo Freire from Brazil. And I take an, a great deal from both of those. Uh, but the main argument is that the university as we know it, let's forget about schools for the time being, but that's bad enough. I mean, I still don't know after the pandemic whether the point of schools is to let their children, let parents go to work or, or, or whether it's to teach kids. I think it, I mean, you know, uh, Rousseau said, you know, the, 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 the church uh, uh, was only concerned with training passive conformist uh, citizens. And I would say that's what our school education is doing as well. But to go to the higher education, which we're all more directly involved in personally, uh, uh, I, the, 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 the argument is that, that, that in the 20th century, I mean, the biggest thing that happened there was a bureaucratic revolution, which in fact you can't understand unless you understand this new alliance between the landlords and military types and the capitalists, nor can you understand how the corporations managed to collapse the difference between real and artificial persons in law unless you can see it as, as part of it, but it, it did launch a bureaucratic revolution that gave us the mass consumption and mass production that we took for granted in the 20th century. Uh, now, you know, uh, what I, I, the way I describe this uh, is, is that the universe, I mean, first of all, where do you think uh, the few middle-class people who had higher education, where do you think they got it around 1900? You think they got it in universities? They got it in theological seminaries, more than universities. So the university, although we like to think of our, our, our genealogy as being a thousand-year-old Bologna, Paris, and all that kind of thing, the modern university is a creature of the 20th century, and it has one particular purpose, which is to organize the supply of personnel to transfer responsibility for human life from the family into uh, public bureaucracies. That, you know, the universe, the whole syllabus and, and, and attitude to teaching of the 20th century university was its uh, 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 commitment to that process. And of course, uh, modernism itself and, and, and the universities became prime vehicles of it. Uh, said that in order to do anything, you have to break things down into narrow compartments, become specialized in them, forget that these are connected in any way. Uh, and uh, uh, But even so, you know, universities in this country up to the Second World War were still pretty uh, uh, holistic and cosmopolitan and, and human institutions. Most of what they did was bums on seats, teaching kids. 
research was almost unknown. It was a, a private endeavor. There was no public funding of research. But after the war, research took over when the, the, uh, you know, the, the production of food and chemicals and armaments became an overwhelming preoccupation of post-war states. And the universities ran into supplying them. And then the teaching of those universities kind of came second to the research funding. The social sciences and humanities felt they needed a slice of the money, so they pretended to sell themselves to uh, the funders as quasi-scientists, and social science was born, which I think was a huge mistake. Uh, so what, what I'm saying is that you have to take a view of, and I do in my book, of the evolution of education. And the, what they used was, what, what, in schools and in higher education, was what I call the hose and bucket approach to, to learning, which is forget who you are, forget what you think you know, we're going to put you in in cohorts fed from the top down, determined by people in charge of you, not by you, what, how you're gonna learn, in what particular way. In other words, you, we're gonna be the hose, you're gonna be the bucket. We forget, the bucket has no personality, no previous history, no independent will or thought. And all, you know, and, and, and if you succumb to this, and manage to get the right answers at the end of it, you know, we will make sure you get a decent job for life, which of course doesn't exist anymore. You know, so 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 I mean this is this is I'm sorry I, I keep going on, but the, the, this is a huge aspect of what I'm trying to come to grips with. And uh, and what it means is not that we replace formal education with uh, uh, lifelong self-learning, but that we have to create more space for students to be themselves. At the moment, I say in my book, you know, that uh, you learn more from mid after midnight conversations with fellow students than you do in the class. Rousseau says, you know, middle-class and aristocratic parents want their children to grow up as fast as possible and they f f create schools for that, but uh, actually they learn more in the, in, 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 in the playground on their own time and at their own pace, or when they're given some chance to amuse themselves separately, they learn more from that than anything they learn in the classroom. It's the same with uh, Paolo Freire. You know? So I, I really think that if, if you feel, you know, so it's clear, I mean, I have to say also that this focus on education developed after I submitted the book. I mean, it's in the book, but I've written almost exclusively about this question afterwards. And uh, it, 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 it's why in the end I, I trade, you know, got rid of a trade by autobiography and wrote something I hope would be of some use to young students. Thank you. Question at the back. Yes. 
You must shout if you're going to be heard. Oh, being yourself. All right, there you go. It works. Uh, yeah, being yourself is one of them uh, brilliant endeavour. But um, I don't know if you touched upon this earlier in the talk, but it's also the single. Try not to gabble as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not very good at public speaking. Well, in that case, shut up. Oh, sorry. Go on. I can't hear you. That's the problem. To satisfy you. So um, yeah. So. Um, uh, self-endeavour and self-improvement and becoming yourself is a brilliant and wonderful idea, but it's also the single greatest threat to the people that own the capital, the money, and also the power, and also um, what happens and should happen tomorrow, as in, should we have renewable energy or oil, etc., like the LSEs owned by oil companies? And so, therefore... Having this dream is wonderful, but we've got to tackle and look, make sure we do look at um, how things like democracy, which is per, which is the beauty of civilization, is constantly being used as a banner to disguise dictatorships, like the West War uh, was in Iraq, West War on the working class in the in the West, like the UK. So they use uh, di uh, democracy as a humane, civilised um, tool for a betterment of the self. But the actual reality is it is a dictatorship which is proven very recently in the UK by the uh, how Jeremy Corbyn was... Is there so a question here or is it The question speech? is, do you think democracy will ever allow to function? And if it is, do you think that's where the human and human being can reign supreme rather than be the slave as we have been for the last... 2,000, 3,000 years. Uh, the the questions you. you're asking are very prominent in my book. I mean, uh, when I say I embrace the, the democratic revolutions and, and humanist philosophy of the 18th century is because I think that Western society has gone downhill ever since in the 19th and 20th century. And now, so uh, I, I, I do consider democracy uh, at great length. Secondly, I don't believe that self uh, focus on self is sufficient for dealing with the problems. That, uh, that, that is simply a method. I think I think several people have mentioned in my own case, you know, that the fact that I was able to to create a space to learn by myself enabled me to engage with the, the uh, social, large social processes that, that have to be mobilized in order to achieve whatever we want from the world. So, uh, 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 I mean, the, 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 these are very, very big questions, but I, I, I mean, if you read my book, you will see that a massive amount of it is not concerned with me and my development. The only reason I'm saying that is because I want to reach some of the people who read it, who will find this larger picture intimidating and might be able to enter it via my reported experiences as a person like them. It's not that I believe that individualism is going to create the political forces that will make the world something we want to live in. 
you know i mean it's uh i mean even everything i've said since we started this question and answer session when i said that you know i don't believe that that small scale self motivated politics uh, is going, when I said that we will need large scale bureaucracies, I mean, those would include armies and unions and political parties. It's, and, and, and indeed, I can, you know, I, I mean, I have a, a, a section, I mean, a chapter on my own formation by post war British politics and education. Uh, which uh, uh, Joanna said she learned something from. So uh, I write a great deal about the rise of the corporate, of transnational corporate capitalism. I talk about the dominant social form of the 20th century, which I call national capitalism. So, and, and how these uh, supported in the three decades after the war a progressive democracy and have subverted it since. So it's not that I would equate politics with this. My, my, my emphasis on self-learning is because there isn't enough space for it in our education systems. And I, you know, I mean, I, I've learned about, about, about self-learning from working class autodidacts who would put whose learning was so tremendous that they would put most academics to shame because there were no limits to the paths of self-development they explored. I mean, working class, and, and also my, my principal, uh, 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 my, my principal mentor is C.L.R. James, the West Indian revolutionary who was himself an autodidact in a very substantial degree. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 anyway, I, I thank you very much for your question. And, and I have to say that you spoke perfectly credibly and, and understandably to me after you got going. I'd echo that. Great question. Great questions from all of you. Unfortunately, we've run out of time and drinks um, are waiting. But I really like to thank my fellow panelists. What happened uh, to the online thing? They were too quiet. We haven't we haven't got uh, online yeah. questions. But thank you, Kate. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jeff, for all your help. And I would encourage you to dip into this book. Uh, there are no easy answers, but this the, this book is really helpful with how we go forward. And we need creative thinkers like this more than ever because, as we know, Houston, we have a problem. So look forward to meeting you all over drinks. Thank you again and congratulations, Keith. Well done. Chinese, the Chinese CP method, clap yourself. <laughs> I have some licorice all sorts for you. Oh. Some pear drops. <laughs> By the way, I hope you'll mostly stay because we, we bought booze for 40 people <laughs> and they don't accept refunds. <laughs> Remember the third one, sorry, but two out of three isn't bad. It was pear drops, licorice, all sorts, and wine drops.